With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Tuttles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Uh, our mission, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and non-profit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. The broadband stimulus, as we've mentioned before, committed over $7 billion and some change to the national broadband effort, and we're now starting to see the fruits of those investments in various parts of the country. But a question that should be asked is, did we do ourselves a disservice by not structuring the stimulus program to better support small service providers, particularly uh, wireless ISPs, or WISP as they're known, and I ask this question because I read a lot and I hear about uh, so many WISPs that are getting broadband into hard-to-reach places that no one else serves, you know, part of that, that objective of the broadband stimulus. But it's not just about, you know, WISP providing services in remote areas. I feel there are ways that these smaller, agile companies can deliver faster broadband and play a role even in urban areas. And, and in fact, in Kansas City, a neighborhood group proposed uh, to Google a wireless solution to address one of their unserved communities. So today I'm very happy to have Matt Larson on the show as a guest. Um, he is a member of the Board of Directors of the Wireless ISP Association, or WISPA. And Matt's also been a frequent uh, member of the audience for this show, uh, for many of our, my past shows, and has had some interesting insights uh, into the uh, chat, uh, the, the show's chat room area. So, Matt, welcome to Gigabit Nation and being on this side of the microphone for once. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate the opportunity. So let's let's just jump right into this here. Um, let's get a little bit of background on WISPA. I know that there, there's probably a number of folks in the audience, obviously, who knows what it is. But for those who are uninitiated, what is WISPA? What does your organization do? Um, basically, WISPA is the trade association for fixed wireless Internet providers. Uh, we started the organization in 2004. Uh, there was a group of uh, seven or eight of us that got together and founded it, and our, our basic premise was that we wanted to try and unify the fixed wireless industry and get uh, you know do what we could to show that there's a lot of people out there that are getting their broadband from fixed wireless providers, and there are a lot of uh, providers out there that were doing this kind of work without government subsidy and really doing a lot of a lot of good things in rural areas and in urban areas, basically anywhere that's either unserved or underserved by existing providers. Mm-hmm. And uh, over the years, the organization pretty much ran all volunteer-based, and then in the last couple of years, we finally got to the point where we have now have an executive director. Uh, membership uh, is, I think we're just at or just over 800 members, and we're putting on two successful trade shows a year and have uh, been working on developing a more uh, more powerful presence in Washington, D.C. and with uh, state regulators uh, to show that 
wireless providers are out there doing good things. Now you mentioned you know fixed wireless a number of times. Uh, again, for the you know folks who may only assume that wireless is Wi-Fi or it's cellular, um, what's what's fixed wireless? Uh, basically, fixed wireless is where you've got a uh, high gain antenna mounted somewhere, going back to a stationary point, you know, an access point, and it's a really critical definition in there because by having a, a fixed wireless connection with high gain uh, antennas, uh, it basically lets you carry a lot more capacity than you can carry over a mobile network. It, it allows a wireless network to scale much higher. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's kind of the most important issue there, and it's it's way different than you see with with uh, mobile wireless. Right. Exactly. Now, in the um, now, what kind of speeds are we talking? I mean, I know that within the mobile or the cellular world, you know, they get all you know excited and whatnot about LTE, and it's supposed to get you know 12 megs a second and and so forth. When we're talking uh, fixed wireless, what are we talking? Different speeds, higher speeds? Yeah, there's uh, you know, like on my network, we're using uh, an 802.11n based uh, MIMO fixed wireless system uh, it's called AirMax by Ubiquity. And we see speeds up to 30 meg out to end users. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're doing a dedicated connection, you can see speeds a lot higher. Like last week, we just put up an air fiber link, uh, which is made by the same manufacturer, and we actually saw uh, 750 meg uh, through it. And, and that's a point-to-point, but uh, the basic thing is that it's, it's flexible. This is using unlicensed spectrum, and we can deliver comparable speeds to uh, a lot of cable systems. Maybe not, you know, the latest and greatest DOCSIS three systems, but we can definitely match the speeds of DOCSIS two systems and beat the speeds on most DSL. And you know, the other big consideration is that it gets out to way more places because you don't have to run a wire to every single location. You can put up a tower, and pretty much anybody within uh, line of sight radius of it is a potential customer. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I forgot to mention in the, in the introduction, you, you also run a WISP, and, and you probably should maybe tell people a little bit about your your WISP business and where you serve, and you know what kind of uh, you know how big is your service area? Um, we, my operation is Vista Beam, and we started out in uh, Scottsbluff, Nebraska. We're out in a very rural part of the country. Uh, and basically, we now cover, we started out with, on like three towers around uh, our area here and a couple towers near Laramie, Wyoming. And now we actually cover parts of four states and over about 40,000 square miles. Wow. So you've grown quite a bit. Yeah. And, th- and this is what's really interesting. This is like probably some of the most rural country in the lower 48. Uh, you know, Wyoming has the least uh population density of any of the states in the lower 48 and you know there's just there's not a lot of people out here but that that uh it's actually been a it's been interesting because if there's not a lot of people it means there's also been not a lot of competition so uh and even despite that there's multiple competitors in my area i think we probably uh have i would say 17 or 18 different other fixed wireless providers competing within you know my service area and for the most part, everybody gets along. We're, you know, we're providing a, a, a badly needed service out here. We have a um, 
rare treat. We have a call in here. Now I'm going to, you know, I, I know I'm in the technology business, but I'm going to profess my trepidation here as I try to bring them online and not lose them. Hold on one second. Let's see who we got on the line. Good morning. This is Gigabit Nation. Hello. Do we have a caller? Good morning. It's Graham Gibson. I'm a whisk from Kansas City. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm calling because uh, I'm actually in a community that's running gigabit speeds out uh, to customers. Uh, part of uh, what's happening in Kansas City is, of course, the Google Fiber experiment. And that's uh, making it uh, possible for us as uh, a WISP to uh, increase our speeds rather dramatically to uh, businesses in this market. And we're actually delivering uh, wireless uh, feeds to companies at uh, 100 megs plus uh, in unlicensed and uh, in licensed shots up to 2 gigabits. Wow. So I thought I would weigh in on the uh, on the uh, the speed issue that is possible in fixed wireless. Uh, because uh, when you're in a metro area, it's quite different than uh, when you're in a rural area. Right. Now, how how you've explained it, but again, let's come at that again. So you're getting a gig because I think the conventional wisdom is that what you're doing is impossible. So how have you made <laughs> the impossible possible? Well, it's not. It's just a question of paying for the <laughs> the pricey gear that does it. <laughs> is it about the is it about uh, the backhaul? Uh, yes, uh, it is uh, definitely about the backhaul, and uh, there's a uh, there's a new unit out uh, from Ubiquity called Air Fiber uh, that is making it possible for us to use an unlicensed frequency to deliver uh, very high speeds to the end user, uh, and our uh, our backhaul network is uh, is designed to support gigabit speeds, and and we did that to get ready for the influx of Google Fiber in this area. I, I'm a B2B uh, a WISP, which means that I, I only service businesses. Uh, the Google network is only serving residential, so there's, a, uh, there's a, an interconnection uh, peering point that we run uh, called the Kansas City Network Access Point that makes it possible for people that are using the, the Google Gigabit Fiber to cross-connect to their company networks and remote in and do video conferences and things like that that uh, are not the sort of things that, that you, you normally do in a rural environment because you don't have the, the bandwidth for it. But we certainly do here, and we're trying to really leverage and exercise that. Mm -hmm. well, well, while I got both of you here, before I let you go uh, from Kansas City, um, can the WISP be a player in a more urban setting because i know matt you're you're covering rural areas and in fact when i first started hearing a lot about wisp it was about their work in rural areas but do we have the potential for uh the 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 wisp world as you will if you will to become uh urban players as much as rural players I, I, think. I think there are two answers to that question. Uh, yes, certainly there are, uh, are wireless players that are focused on urban. Uh, that's our focus here at CTC Wireless in Kansas City. Uh, we uh, we've always been in a uh, in a, either a light urban to a dense urban environment, uh, and we now have uh, some degree of operations going on in Kansas City and Houston and in St. Louis. Uh, the uh, the objective uh, eventually will be to marry a lot of these wireless systems together 
to start building national backbones. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we started the Kansas City Network Access Point. We've invested heavily in data center assets. Uh, by using peering, we can lower the cost of bandwidth, which is a very important consideration for WISPs. Uh, because if you're going to play with the big boys, you have to be able to match their pricing. And so uh, by being able to trade bits with many different players, uh, that is bandwidth we don't have to buy and consequently bring our, pr our price down. Uh, the, the fact that, that many of the WISPs started in rural markets uh, is perfectly understandable because they were trying to fill, fill a compelling need. But there's plenty of operators that are working in, a, uh, in an urban environment and doing so very well. Uh, it is idea. possible for short-range shots to, to go up to 2 gigabits to 2.5 gigabits uh, in, the, in the wireless market, and we use both... Uh, RF, uh, which is pretty much what everybody does in fixed wireless, uh, and optical technology to do that, um, both uh, in fiber and also in optical uh, air shots. So, Excellent. Uh, let, me, let me just break in. I, I'm, I, I don't want to mean to cut you off, but I, want, uh, I know Matt has, a, uh, ha has some insight here, and, and uh, I wanted to get into that as well. But definitely thank you for calling in and giving us information. If you can send me email sometime, I do want to learn more about what you're doing in Kansas City. So and my email address is Craig at CJSpeaks.com. But definitely definitely you get back in touch with me. Well thanks, Matt, right. letting, for letting me buddy in a little bit. No, no worries. So Matt, no now you were gonna you were gonna respond to that question about, you know, sort of a dual role or a dual vision for, for WISP. Well, yeah, I think uh, you know Graham's business is a perfect example. I, there are fixed wireless ISPs in nearly every urban area right now. And, yeah, I mean it's not a new idea. Uh, Windstar Intelligent were trying that stuff, uh, you know, back in the late '90s. But the equipment was uh, uh, very cumbersome, very expensive, and there were uh, you know lots of licensing issues at the time. And you know, now what we're seeing, there, there's urban wisps all over the place. I know we were in Washington, D.C. Uh, doing some lobbying work uh, two, three years ago, and a lot of people were surprised to hear there's actually a wisp on Capitol Hill that mm -hmm. services a big part of uh, that that particular area. You know, and, and you'd think, why why would somebody bother with getting, you know, a wireless, buying fixed wireless here when you can get, you know, Verizon and Comcast and whatever you know, other uh, landline solutions they've got there. But there's a lot of people just, they don't want to have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, pricing plans that require you to lock in and buy bundles or uh, subpar performance, you know, different times of the day. And, you know, it, it, I think it really points out to the need for a, a true competitive third pipe for broadband. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that wire, fixed wireless providers can provide and are providing uh, all over the country. And, you know, the stuff that Graham's doing down there shows that it's equally important, not just for residential, but also for, for business. In a lot of cases, it's more important for business than it is for residential because uh, uh, you see you, you see a, a lot bigger need, a lot more potential for uh, efficiency in business when they can do things like, you know, do, do a lot of video conferencing and doing a lot of, like, telecommuting and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Now... My understanding of the WISP world, in fact, you know, I, I was there, I spoke at your, uh, the WISPA conference, I believe it was last year, and one of the traits of what I will call the typical WISP 
is that it's an entrepreneurial soul to get started. Uh, they don't really, I guess, set out to, to create a huge business. They they set out to meet a local need. They run fairly lean. Uh, but then as, as the business starts to pick up, because they're woven into the fabric of the community, you know, they tend to grow, there's loyalty, you know, they add people and so forth and so on. Is that an accurate portrait of the WISP? I, I think for the most part it is. Uh, we're starting to see, uh, you know, I, I would say 10 years ago you had a lot of hobbyists that kind of got into it and started into it. And then – some of the hobbyists have evolved into business people, and a lot of the people that were originally just kind of playing around with it have uh, gotten out of it or, you know, thrown their their stuff in and, you know, were acquired by another operator. And we're starting to see, uh, you know, some small-scale acquisition stuff. Uh, there's one fixed wireless provider uh, headquartered in Denver has, uh, I think there are 150 or 160,000 subscribers. So uh, they're proving that... Uh, the business can scale way up, uh, but you know, I, I I think you know the idea of uh, you know fixed wireless providers being entrepreneurial is uh, it, it's there because I mean there's there's no free ride in fixed wireless. Uh, mm -hmm. You're out there, you've got unlicensed spectrum, so you kind of have to fight it out, and it's like let the best business model win. Um, for the most part, fixed wireless providers don't get any government subsidy. And, you know, that's really what's keeping a lot of these inefficient phone companies afloat is the fact that they've got a gravy train to uh, the USF fund to uh, continue to operate their, their business models. And pretty much all the fixed wireless providers have, are competing with them directly or indirectly. And you have, to, you have to build a better business to be able to survive. So, yeah, I think a big part of it is uh, the fact that fixed wireless providers are very entrepreneurial. Now, Given that uh, that focus and that independence, especially the independence of you know interest involvement in the government, um, are they willing in general to to partner with the the community and the local government in what might be a public private partnership in which both uh, sides of the, the equation have an ownership stake in the network? I, I've seen a lot of that, but it's a slightly different structure than I think most of the community network people are familiar with. Yeah, I, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, there's a town, there's a couple of towns in Wyoming, if there's one in particular I, I like to focus on, uh, Medicine Bow, Wyoming. And Medicine Bow had no internet at all. You know, there, there were, you know, some, some people were on satellite, you know, it was one of those deals where you saw people with two or three satellite dishes on their house mm -hmm. because they'd fill up their quota and then halfway through the month and then they'd turn on the second one and fill it up. Uh, they're just very desperate to get some broadband. And, you know, some people from the town contacted us and basically made a deal with them. It's like, well, well if we can put some stuff on your water tank, uh, you know, we'll give you a free connection for the fire department and the, and the city office. And, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get Internet into your town. And basically that has developed into a really good partnership. Uh, they didn't have to put out any money. They just had to let us get access to some of the facilities. And, you know, we... We put broadband into the town, and that's you know I, I've I've had similar dealings with uh, multiple small communities in my service area. That's how we've gotten into quite a few places, mm -hmm. is by saying, all right, you don't have broadband, we're willing to do it for you. You don't have to put out any money; just provide us with access to some facilities, and that has worked out really well because uh, 
they don't have to worry about trying to maintain a network that may not be part of their core competency, especially in these smaller communities. They aren't going to have uh, they aren't going to have people there that are going to have the you know the core competency to try and maintain a network because it's it's you know fairly complex for you know a community of you know Medicine Bow I think is 200 people. It may only be 150 people. I don't know. Some of the towns we've been in are are you know just very tiny little dots on the map. Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's they they really need to kind of work with somebody else to take to get get their needs satisfied. Now one of the I guess pushback backs that come from some community advocates is that the community needs to maintain some some skin in the game because ultimately though interests are often in parallel there there may come a point when the community may have a need that goes contrary to what the business needs are you know i mean it, it in its extreme that's what you have with the big incumbents and communities you know it's like the incumbents business model and and loyalty to stockholders trumps anything that the community may want need or whatever um at your level at the wisp level um does that issue of ownership and and you know and broadband in the public good does that become a discussion point or all or or are maybe the towns too small for that to become a discussion point the places i've dealt with uh you know the towns are too small and a lot of times they don't really have an alternative so you know the best way to do that and and this has actually worked out to the benefit of a lot of towns several of the towns we've actually gotten into miraculously dsl started to show up within a couple of months after we put service in and it's like despite the fact that yeah I'd, I'd love to have a town that was like all to myself but it's really not a bad thing to have some competition and i think the thing i don't the thing about having uh when you run an entrepreneurial business a big part of it is making sure you've got partners that you're comfortable with and that you have a good working relationship with so from an entrepreneurial point of view i would have a lot of difficulty having shared ownership with a community, uh, and I understand why a community might, you know, want to have something that they could have a little bit more control over. But the thing is, when you deal with communities, um, administrations change. Different people come in, and you have an entirely different set of variables after every election. So, I mean, I could see how, uh, you know, the, the needs of a community change, and I think what's most important is to establish a positive interactive relationship with the people in a community to make sure that um you know their needs are getting met i have absolutely no problem if a community doesn't feel like we're meeting their needs and wants to go a different direction and you know we can't we can't meet those needs then you know they should have the opportunity to go out and do something different mm-hmm. so I, I mean that's that that's kind of the way i feel about it one of the things i I think a lot of WISPs probably feel this way, but I, I'm not afraid of competition. Um, I, I'm afraid of getting elbowed out or knocked out unfairly. So mm-hmm. I guess that's that's kind of my viewpoint on that. You know, I, and when you're talking about larger communities, uh, you know, you've got some other issues as far as like right away for being able to do fiber and that sort of thing. And I think eventually we might see a lot of wireless ISPs evolve into uh, fiber providers. Uh, especially if they, you know, if you can continue to kind of build up your customer base and get a little bit of density, then fiber starts to make sense. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where the interaction with cities starts to become a little bit more 
more uh, prevalent. But a lot of it just comes down to uh, uh, I think a lot of communities are scared to death by what's happened with bigger, you know, with bigger corporate entities that have come in and pretty much demanded to take control. And this is what you're going to get, and you're going to like it. Um, you know, the nice part about wireless ISPs or fixed guys when we come in is we're providing an alternative. It's it's kind of like a it's kind of like a blow off valve. So they can say, well, if you don't want to do this for CenturyLink, then we're going to find somebody that will. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. So a lot depends on how well you can negotiate a relationship that works for everybody and, and move forward from there. Absolutely. Right, okay. And, then that, you know, I, I, that that makes a lot of sense. What is it that communities can do to foster the development an eventual partnership with a WISP? You know, part of it's uh, a, a big part is providing some access to facilities. Uh, the biggest, one of the biggest issues for wireless ISPs is having uh, somewhere to put your access points. So if a community wants to be able to, you know, try and foster a good relationship with a fixed wireless provider, you know, provide access on, you know, City towers, almost every city has some kind of communication towers up already, you know, for the police department, the fire department. Um, it's pretty much almost zero cost. It's just a coordination issue with, uh, you know, law enforcement and uh, and uh, utilities managers to be able to, uh, you know, let a fixed wireless provider put some stuff up on a tower. That's a big thing. Um, you know, and I think eventually, you know, if we're really looking forward, uh, anybody that's doing a fixed wireless deployment should probably be looking at, you know, what, what would it take to do fiber? And, and uh, you know, that's where things can also get interesting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cities, you know, even smaller cities have put in their own fiber networks to connect a lot of their offices and their utility points. And uh, having a situation where some of the, you know, being able to deliver backhaul to certain points in the city over fiber would go a long ways towards, uh improving the capacity on a network because, you know, you've kind of got different issues that are going to be uh, constraints. You know, you've got your your last mile, which is the connection from the tower out to the customer. And you've got the middle mile, the connection from the tower to Internet backbone, and then you've got your Internet backbone capacity. And really, the, the last mile equipment has gotten way, way faster, um, you know, to the point where, you know, you, you see fixed wireless providers uh, in residential areas offering, you know, 15, 20, 25 meg service. Mm -hmm. And you get very many people on an access point, you're going to need to have probably some kind of fiber to feed it or some kind of a very high-capacity uh, radio to feed it. And if a community can provide an operator with uh, access to fiber and right-of-ways, that, that's probably the other thing that would be very beneficial. Mm-hmm. The um, one of the one of the guests, uh, or not guests, one of the one of the audience members uh, in a previous show, their contention about wireless was that uh, a weak point was the fact that your access points could get overwhelmed. Uh, is technology uh, addressing that issue? Um, because when you have the sparse population, you have sparse you know the, the the what vertical assets you have are good, but they may be far apart. I mean, where does the the issue of 
um, number of subscribers relative to number of access points, how does that get all balanced out so that it still works for the network? I, I've got a general rule of thumb. Uh, we figure that we can put about 50 users on an access point. Mm-hmm. And once that access point's filled up, it's time to put up another access point. And I, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a dodgy answer because somebody from Comcast gave me this same dodgy answer uh, <laughs> a couple months ago. And basically, I asked the question of uh, a guy from Comcast. I said, "Hey, what do you do when your network fills up?" When you've reached saturation capacity, your nodes are full, what do you do? I was asking, it was a, the question was about traffic prioritization. Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to, you know, you're selling this video service and then you're selling Internet on top of it. Well, the video stuff always gets through, but you have to dedicate so much capacity to it. And his answer, which I thought was total baloney, is it never fills up. We just add mm-hmm. more capacity. Right. Which, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a time deal. If I, if I say, look, what's your, time, what's, your, what's your capacity today? You can absolutely fill that up. But next week, you know, they split the node, they put in another another node and have more capacity. Well, a wireless ISP operates exactly the same way. You go out and you put up another sector. And at this point, you know, there's uh, – it used to be we were really limited in the amount of spectrum that we had available. Uh, and, I mean, we still are. But in 5 gigahertz, uh, you know, we've got equipment now that will run anywhere from 5.2 up to 5.8. And there's some more possible places where spectrum can be – you know, where we're finding some other chunks of spectrum that can be used for fixed wireless. We're talking about, you know, six, seven hundred megahertz worth of spectrum. You can get a lot of cells into six, seven hundred megahertz. And by sectorizing and using, you know, good RF design, you can absolutely, you can scale a wireless operation. It will probably scale beyond what some cable operations will do. And that's, that it's, it's like, that, that it's, it's basically, uh, you know, it's propaganda put out there by the, by the, the wireline people that wireless doesn't scale. Wireless absolutely does scale. You just put up more sectors and you make smaller uh, smaller cells. So anybody that says fixed wireless doesn't have the capacity, uh, I would love to take that person on in debate. <laughs> Maybe that might be one of our future shows. But, I mean, I, I, I understand your point. It does. It, there is a, the ability to have that... Um, expansion of the network, and you know we've got spectrum coming online hopefully soon. Uh, you know the, the whole white space slash unlicensed spectrum uh, discussion, and what's going to happen with that holds promise. So it's um, you know it's a addressable issue is kind of how I look at it, right? Yes. It's not uh, you know it's not an either or, all or nothing kind of situation. Yeah, you know, there's some incredible things that I, I think really get overlooked in the fixed wireless provider business. It's, it's stuff that we take for granted that a lot of people have a hard time comprehending. Um, the fact that we use unlicensed spectrum means that the hurdle is low, uh, that you don't have to go out and come up with millions of dollars to go out and buy spectrum to get into the market. Um it gives you flexibility. I don't have to worry about if I want to go if I want to shoot a link into from Nebraska into Wyoming, I can do it in an afternoon. Uh if I was using licensed spectrum, you know, I maybe my spectrum would stop at the border. I wouldn't have the ability to use it. I'd have to go line up a spectrum lease or buy something or maybe it wouldn't even be available. You know, you've got 
thousands of megahertz worth of spectrum in rural areas is just sitting there because speculators have bought it and they're sitting on it because they figure that, you know, spectrum is going to go up in value. Mm -hmm. But with unlicensed, anybody can get in there and do that. So instead of waiting for the value of our spectrum to go up so we can flip it or having to come up with a whole bunch of money just to buy spectrum in the first place, we're building a business. We're building a customer base. We're providing a service. And that's one of the things that's incredible about, you know, fixed wireless providers being able to do that. Uh, So, you know, it's 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 kind of it's kind of the the wild wild west in some ways, but uh, it's also you know you're 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 seeing evolution in broadband happening happening very very quickly, as opposed to the glacial pace we see with uh, you know the telcos and the the cable companies. The, the cable, I, I wouldn't I, sh- I shouldn't pick on cable companies so much because the cable companies have been doing this for a long time. They're actually very similar. Uh, if you look at the early cable providers uh, and what how that industry came about, uh, it was very entrepreneurial to start with. And, you know, they're doing it without government money. They're building profitable business models uh, to do it without, you know, kind of doing it on their own dime. So I've got some respect for that. And we're kind of seeing the same thing happen again, I think, with uh, fixed wireless providers and, you know, what we're able to do. How... Um badly do you think the whole stimulus process was? You know, you talk about the fact that WISPs don't, uh, you know, they don't take government money. I mean, it's a pride point, actually, with WISP, I have noticed. It's, uh, you know, something that people stand on is one of the reasons for doing business with us. But before I kind of get into that, you know, maybe coming back and looking at the fact, okay, we gave out all this money, um, could that have benefited more WISP or WISP involvement? Should it have benefited more WISP involvement? I mean, would you guys have taken the money if people had figured out that maybe a small WISP would have been eligible? I mean, how how do you guys view that whole dance that we did? Look, I'm, I'm proud that I didn't take any – I haven't taken any government money stuff. But I looked at it, and basically there's there's too many strings attached. Um, and essentially you are bringing government – you're making government a partner in your business. And that completely that has some massive restrictions on what you can do. And I think for most wireless ISPs, uh, the ability to operate entrepreneurially with a lot of flexibility is actually one of our biggest uh that's one one of our biggest advantages. As far as you know what happened with the stimulus program, uh I talked with a lot of vendors and I heard from a lot of vendors when the stimulus program was announced that it was kind of a nightmare. The vendors that serve WISPs were very concerned about it because a lot of WISPs uh, slowed down deployment. They wanted to see what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. The, the vendors and the people that got all excited about uh, the broadband stimulus program were the people that sell fiber gear and telco gear because uh, they knew that their customers were going to be, you know, first in line to get the government money out of the deal. But from my point of view, what we saw in a lot of areas uh, was the stimulus actually slowed down broadband deployment because there were a lot of people, a lot of uh, investors and entrepreneurs that were concerned that government was going to come in and basically uh, severely curtail their ability to run a profitable business. I think in the long run, the stimulus stuff is probably going to be beneficial 
but not for the reasons everybody thought. I think a lot of it's going to be because the stimulus went to build uh, a lot of these fiber networks, and eventually that fiber is going to get used, but it's probably going to be after some of the telcos have gone bankrupt or have started spinning off uh, these fiber networks to other companies uh, in bankruptcy, and then we'll start to see more access to it. But right now, I can't. I can't really say. I, I think stimulus actually slowed down broadband uh, deployment, especially in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Would you? Uh, where do you think the? Or, or what do you think will be the causes of those bankruptcies? I think part of it's going to be uh, unsustainable business models. You know, right now a lot of this stuff. When you build a model that's dependent on government subsidy for a high percentage of your business plan. That is a business model that is built to fail, because uh, we I, we've had we've been a nation with uh, substantial fiscal irresponsibility. The stuff that goes on in broadband is like a little tiny component of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as government cleans up, and and maybe that's too much to hope for. <laughs> but I, I think what's going to happen is that uh, you know the idea of building a subsidy in for something that is being provided from a private provider, I, I think the logic and the time has come for a lot of the government subsidies for broadband to basically go away because there's private companies that are able able to deliver that same service. There's no reason to continue the subsidy. And we're starting to see, you know, Connect America Fund is obviously a uh, obviously the start of that. And I'm I'm hopeful that uh, we'll start to see some some logic uh, get applied to these programs and that the gravy train that a lot of the phone companies have been rolling along with is going to basically stop. So that that's why I think you might start to see some of that stuff. This has happened before. Uh, we saw this in the late, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, fiber networks built out all over the place, and uh, a lot of them turned around and you know those original companies are long gone, but the fiber's still there, and somebody's using it. So mm-hmm. now, one of the uh, guests that was on uh, Gigabit Nation, oh, I guess about a week or so ago, they're involved in the fiber project in um, Vermont. And near the end of the interview, you know, he brought up the fact that a lot of these middle mile networks that are being built as a result of the stimulus are actually not going to deliver the benefit that they were promised because it's going to be very difficult for last-mile providers to hook into that infrastructure. And you mentioned there were two things. One was the uh, the fact that a lot of those middle-mile networks are also sucking up the uh, libraries, schools, governments, you know, your basic uh, large institutions, which then takes away the incentive, the ROI incentive for smaller local providers. And the other part of it goes was just sheer engineering. It's basically they've, they're building this massive, you know, eight-lane, you know, super highway, but asking people from, you know, the rural areas to connect the dirt road to a concrete super highway. And it goes, there aren't the, the proper connection points being built in. Um, do, do, do you think that there's validity in that uh, statement? Uh, he pretty much hit the nail right on the head. 
I mean, that, that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, and I mentioned to you the earlier, uh, I told you about the town of Medicine Bow, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a transcontinental fiber that runs right down the railroad tracks in front of the town. So here's a town that has no broadband access available. And there's a regen station half a mile out of town that has terabits running through it. But nobody can get access to it. That's kind of what we've been dealing with. I mean, the way we got access into town is, you know, we built, you know, I suppose, you know, an old school network engineer would look at it and say, this is two tin cans and a string. We built, you know, three, four uh, unlicensed links uh, to get into town to deliver Internet when there's terabits of fiber running right outside the town. And I mean, we're seeing this all over the place. Uh, there's multiple uh, fiber networks, the stimulus-funded fiber networks that built been built across my footprint. I can't figure out a uh, economically feasible way to connect to any of them. Now, because I, of the technology I, costs or because of other costs? No, it's other costs. I mean, the devil's in the details. There's a, a fiber network in northeast Colorado I've been trying to get. You know, they gave me pricing and everything, and it's like, hey, this all looks good. I'd like to connect up. The problem is when I actually, well, how do I connect? Well, you need to get a fiber loop from this provider. So a $1,000 a month, you know, price for a 50-meg Internet connection, uh, you know, 50-meg commercial Internet connection, you know, it doesn't sound too bad. But when you tack on a $2,500 loop charge, from the local phone company, it completely blows the economics of it out of the water. So what you've got is you've got all these gatekeepers on these fiber networks, and unless you've got a way to get into, you know, unless you've got a way to get on these networks, uh, they're no good for anybody. And the networks are pretty much designed for phone companies and cell carriers. So the cell, I, we, I had this conversation at a conference a couple of months ago uh, Somebody from RUS was talking about all the benefits of their program. I was like, this program has tremendous benefits for utility companies, telephone companies, and cell phone companies. And the rest of us are completely left out. And that goes for community networks that want to get access to middle mile. That goes for fixed wireless providers. It goes for any kind of alternative provider. So the big part about it, I mean, building a fiber network, you know, that eight-lane superhighway is great, but you better have exits, and the exits better be open to everybody, open to enough people to make a difference. Wow, that's um, that's pretty sobering, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. I mean, that's a uh, – because, in essence, it flies in the face of the promise, I guess is what we're saying. Um, now – is there a way to counter the problem? I mean, it's okay. So we've we've identified it, or you know, a number of people have identified the problem as being, you know, we're not engineered and structured properly for these middle mile networks to be beneficial in a last mile scenario. What is the solution? Do you basically then just focus on having a bunch of middle mile folks in essence create self contained networks, you know, pretty much like you the scenario you pointed out where, you know, if a city has fiber, then get the WISP to tie into the fiber and then you have substantial uh backhaul and you have significant speed. You know, is it a bunch of projects like that? Is there some national remedy? Uh, is there a state remedy? I mean, because we kind of we talk local and we've talked national, but then, you know, the do the states have a role or are they more uh, I don't know, align with the feds as a source of our 
problem, or are they more, you know, I don't know, beneficial in the guise of local government solutions or you know local solutions? Well, I, I I don't really see there being a good government solution as part of this uh, because alternative providers don't play the same kind of games. So we have to reframe it and play it in a different way. Um, you know, there's very little I can do about not being able to get access to these middle mile networks because, uh, you know, the companies that put them in had the laws, you know, had a hand in how the laws were done and how things are going to be deployed. And, you know, the whole possession is nine-tenths of the law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, it's their network. They're going to they're gonna establish the rules, you know, within legal boundaries as to who's going to be able to connect to it. The best way I've found to deal with it is to go around it, complete bypass. Um, like, I, you know, I, I couldn't get on this network in northeast Colorado and was stuck with, uh, you know, a very expensive CenturyLink connection that, uh, you know, the previous the people we bought it from still had. We built our own microwave network down there and shut off the CenturyLink deal and basically immediately dropped uh, – $3,500 a month worth of expense that was going to the telephone company by running our own backbone. It wasn't perfect. We didn't have, uh, we barely had enough capacity to deal with the existing customers, but, uh, you know, we've been slowly getting it built up, you know, st- step by step. And that's actually worked out really well. That's how we run almost all of our traffic. We connect the fiber in three points on our network right now. And every, all the rest of our capacity, with the exception of, I think, five locations that we share fiber with the farm implement dealership, it all runs over microwave, unlicensed microwave, and like three or four license links. Uh, it's like 2,500 miles worth of microwave that we've got in the air on our network. We just bypassed them. And that's, that's a really good way to deal with the situation because if you bypass them by either putting up your own microwave or even putting in your own fiber, then it's your network, and you can control it, and you can go out and do business. And once you have a second competitor, you'd be surprised how open uh, the original uh, networks start to become. Interesting. So it is part of that uh, independent streak coming out once again, where basically you say, well, that solution doesn't seem to be a solution, so we have to do the bold thing and build a new path. A better path, in, in from your from your perspective. Exactly. I mean, for, I'm going to tell you from a technical point of view, it's unfortunate because there is all this fiber out there that it really wouldn't be that hard to if 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 the gatekeepers were pushed out of the way and I was able to tie into that fiber down in Medicine Bow, Wyoming, I could start offering 50 meg to the customer. You know, just you know, we could put up three, four cells and say, all right, everybody in town, we can do 50 meg now because we have, you know, a gigabit connection on the outside of town that we have access to. But we can't access that connection. So mm-hmm. we offer, you know, we just bumped it up. So now we can offer 12 meg service in town, but we're, we have to carry it over all our own backbone. But from a technical point of view, it's extremely frustrating that, uh, you know, government partially government-sponsored corporations have put in all these facilities for their own benefit and are, have effectively locked out uh, 
alternative providers. So, but now can can the state from its position maybe be a solution in the sense of is there some way they can uh, mediate or um, somehow make the situation better, different, whatever, either different types of <clears throat> grant programs, planning programs, fostering different types of partnerships, you know, what do you what do you see maybe as a possible state role? I, I think going forward if a new network's being constructed, um I I can see some benefits, maybe not necessarily on the state role, because generally states are big enough that uh Let's take Wyoming, for example, uh, Quest and then now CenturyLink. They pretty much dictate what goes on what goes on in the state of Wyoming as far as uh, big infrastructure for telecommunications. Um, you're not going to get a whole lot of mileage working with them unless you're another big uh, company. However, there, there are programs that say where a county that has a set of communication towers or has several communities that need to get better Internet access could potentially build its own network and then open it up so that whoever wants to get on that network can do it. That, I think, is something that makes sense because at the county level, it's a little bit too small unless it's you know it's a big population center, in which case it probably doesn't have as much of an issue. But counties and cities can probably go out and do things to encourage broadband development at that scale and that works a lot better with the fixed wireless provider scale anyway. Um, to go out and do something like that, it's going to be a little bit more local if they're going to have a little bit more control over. But after you get, you know, you get over a certain size and, uh, you know, the bigger corporations have pretty much got their finger in it and not only their hand on the pulse, it's more like two hands around the neck. If, you know, it doesn't go the way that they want it to, they can, you know, change, change, change the, the way the game is played. You know, they, they've, they've defined it, and I, I think a lot of it is coming up with ways to kind of work around it. And I think working with smaller government entities has more potential than uh, working with bigger government entities because I just – I haven't had a lot of luck with that. I, I, I've participated in a couple of programs in the state of Nebraska where uh, uh, there was a program that had some money from uh, an oil company that – committed a bunch of environmental violations and anyway they, they had to put some money into a fund to build out infrastructure and they took some of that money and uh, created an internet enhancement fund and we used that to put up uh, four towers in some very rural parts of the western end of the state. Um, it's a, but that was like a very small program. You know, I think we were talking twenty or $30,000. So it wasn't a, wasn't a big deal. Um, so I can see stuff like that. The other thing that would probably help would be uh, like low-interest loan-type programs, situations where, uh, uh, you know, provide provide access to some capital. And then if you're doing that, there's going to be a return on it. It's going to get paid back. So I think that's, that's, another, that's another thing that I think a lot of uh, smaller government entities can do. Uh, and that way you're not, you know, when you're talking about grants and, and Stimulus type fund stuff. I, I I like the idea of low interest loans that eventually get paid back and can turn around and be used again for another infrastructure project in the future. So hmm. now, what about 
community foundations, co-ops, and other types of non-profits, because they, they get kind of bounced to the curb, and no one really ever talks about them. But I, I've also heard some very interesting success stories driven by uh, local community foundations and, and, and other non-profits. Where do you see or how do you see possibly a role with them? You know, it it all depends. It's like I said about having the right kind of partners. Um, you know, if you get to work with a foundation that is very progressive and willing to back you and come up with a good a good uh, plan of attack, you know, that's like having a great business partner. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's absolutely a role for that. I, you know, there's two or three different times we did. Uh, uh, I, I worked with a couple of economic development entities to build broadband into some towns. Yeah, you know, we did the low interest loan thing, and you know, one of them was a group of. Uh, uh, it wasn't actually even a government entity; it was a group of like ten people that had thrown some money into this fund to try and you know make their town better. Mm-hmm. And you know, we borrowed ten thousand dollars, and we actually paid it back early, and they were able to take that money and you know use it for something else. And you know, there's all kinds of different good uh, uh, ways to do stuff like that. Uh, the co-op idea. Um, it's got potential. Uh, at one point, I we bought some bandwidth from a internet co-op uh, that had gotten together to buy buy bandwidth, and uh, you know it worked it worked pretty well. Uh, it was more a matter. It was it, there was still business involved. You know, it was kind of trying to come up with the most efficient way to to handle everything. But uh, a co-op is usually good up to a certain scale, and then it doesn't scale beyond that point very well. Because you don't really have the, uh, yeah, a lot of thing. A lot of times, something gets too big for volunteers. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's, I, that's I think where a lot of co-ops start to have a failing. When, you know, I, I'm part of it. I'm we're trying to get a food co-op going in one of the communities here, and uh, you know, the amount of time it takes to, you know, it's volunteer time to get this deal done. Sometimes you're like, why am I spending so much time on this? And, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's the point where there needs to be. That's why you need to have a a sustainable business model, you know, to uh, to make things work. And the most difficult thing to do is scale. Uh, you know, there was I, I know for a long time it was like 100 to 500 customer wireless ISPs were a dime a dozen because that's about all one guy could do. And a lot of these guys never figured out how to scale. You know, I right. was I was really lucky that I ran an ISP beforehand that got up to 4,000 customers. And had kind of an idea of what we were going to be in for after after uh, you know we got over the first couple of hundred customers, and you know we were able to get bigger. There's some other guys have uh, been able to do that, and you know I think that's the key is ha- having something that's sustainable, and uh, you know co-ops and community foundations that sort of thing can certainly you know play a part in that, um, but it, it, they got to be good business partners. Yep, no, no, no doubt about it. And in fact, that I just had an interview with a, um, folks in Canada for uh, for an article, and they were talking about the fact that you know they looked at the co-op model, and it, because it had been done successfully in another Canadian town, but they said the size of our community was such that you know it wasn't going to work, or it wasn't going to work fast enough, and so they opted not to do the co-op thing, but they basically. Had the nonprofit create a, a profit company, and the profit company builds and supports the network, and the profits go into the foundation, and the foundation addresses economic development issues and projects and so forth. 
So it's a um, <laughs> it's a very interesting. <clears throat> You know, and again, it points to you know there are different solutions to these these issues. If we don't, if we can somehow get past the well, it only has to be this, and it can only be the other, and you know, wireless people get abused, and fiber only people get abused, and rightly so, probably by the other side. But it becomes other sides. You know, it doesn't become necessarily let's find the solution. It becomes a very almost a polarized what I refer to as a holy war between the wired and the wireless, and. You know, and I just and people first. I mean, they believe it. They believe it the way other people believe in, you know, mass in the synagogue. I mean, it's it, it's amazing some days. So yep. we've got about four minutes. Let me ask one tech question, um, and we can we can wind down. <clears throat> what about roaming? Because one of the values of wireless has always been promoted as you know the ability to roam, and even cable companies at some point got into a spot where they were you know, trying to sell Wi-Fi services so you can be connected while you roam. And obviously cellular's big thing is that whatever city I go to, I still have service. How how do WISP address the roaming issue, or do do they do they address the roaming issue? I, I don't think we really address the roaming issue. I mean, it's it's fixed it's fixed wireless for a reason. You know, it's to get that high gain antenna that can deliver uh, more signal. Um, I mean, I got an idea on how to deal with roaming, but I don't know if I can fit it into four minutes. Like, I can try. Um, you know what we what we need is what we need is what we need is a way for people to put a an open access hotspot up and be able to monetize the access. So anybody that has, you know, if I want to put up a Wi-Fi hotspot in my restaurant and anybody gets on, it should be set up so AT&T, somebody with an AT&T phone comes in, somebody with a Verizon phone comes in, they come in, their phone hooks up to it, they get access, and in return, the people that own the hotspot get a nickel or something like that, you know, and you just collect nickels, and at the end of the month, you settle up. Um, that's That's what it should look like, I think. But mm-hmm. right now, it's the the telephone companies, the carriers are too greedy. They want to they want to put everybody on their own networks. And you know what's going on right now is the majority. I, I think we are very close to if I know that eighty five ninety percent of all tablet traffic goes through Wi Fi right now, and I think we are over fifty percent of smartphone data traffic goes over Wi Fi as well. When you look at it, it it's something like $40 billion for the cell phone companies to build out enough towers to carry that capacity. They didn't have to spend a dime to do the Wi-Fi networks. But if they would share a little bit of money, I think you would see, you know, everybody would put a Wi-Fi access point. You know, you could, I, as an Internet service provider, I would give them out free to our end users if I knew that every time they came home, you know, their phone was collecting a nickel a day for all the cell phones that they have in their house. Right. And I was able to settle up with AT&T, and it would be a huge benefit for somebody like AT&T because I'd be carrying their, their traffic. They don't have to build out a tower out in the middle of Podunk, Wyoming, and to get uh, self, you know, a good reception for this customer out in the middle of nowhere. If I can build a connection out to them and, and give them Wi-Fi inside their house, there's no reason why a smartphone shouldn't be able to just go through the Wi-Fi. And they're missing out. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt, if they, no if, doubt. And then there you if have something it. ever happens with that, that's what will solve the, the roaming deal. But until gotcha. there's a way to monetize it, it's not going to happen. Gotcha. So, uh, Matt, you know, thank you very much for being our guest today. Lots of great, insightful information here, and I really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll definitely have to figure out a way to do it again sometime. No problem. Look forward to catching up with you again, Greg. 
Sure, and thank you to our audience. We've had a pretty big crowd today. Um, uh, I'm glad that uh, the people enjoyed the show, are sticking with us, you know, as we continue to grow. Uh, have a great day. We will be back on Thursday. My guest will be the um, folks from the city of Tacoma's uh, broadband network, and we'll talk about what's going on up there. And also, final thanks to our sponsor, Team Fischl. Uh They are in the broadband construction business, and they do construction right. So, you know, give them a check out. Uh, you know, check on their banner on the uh, top of our page here, and. Um, See what they have to offer. So anyway, everybody have a great day. We'll talk again soon. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.